Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Happy holidays, everyone, wherever you are. Assuming that you celebrate Christmas and or Hanukkah or anything else around this time of year. And if you don't, like me, then enjoy the holidays if you get to enjoy those, perhaps wherever you are as well. No objection to enjoying the time off, whatever the reason. So I hope you're doing well wherever you are and just want to make a couple of announcements before I introduce today's guest. I'm going to be going on a trip to India, which should be really cool, for two weeks with a religious studies scholar and tantric expert, Douglas Brooks, where we're going to all these different tantric temples in southern India, which should be really phenomenal. And I'm sure that I'll have some insights to share from that trip and hope to get Douglas on at some point. Had one of his students on. Susanna Harwood Rubin, which was my second episode of this podcast, who was a fascinating guest, and Douglas would be fun to have on as well, but that is a a whole vortex of fascinating mythology and esoteric practices around Tantra that I would love to share with a larger audience and to help some people who might not otherwise come across these practices really appreciate how much value there is in doing things that might seem overtly religious, yet the value of the techniques themselves really transcend any particular belief system. And if you had a chance to read my latest blog post on Bhakti Yoga, Religious Devotion for Skeptics, I really touched on that issue in depth regarding another tradition within the yogic path, which is Bhakti Yoga. So while I'm on that trip to India, I'll be out for two weeks and probably not going to be able to post. I am going to try to record more interviews beforehand and schedule those posts in advance. So I'm going to aim for my normal goal of turning one out a week. But if you see that there's a gap for a week or two, now you know why. And I promise that I'll be resuming as soon as I get back, but hopefully I'll have some scheduled so that you won't even notice it. Also, I want to just make an announcement that in the near future, I'm going to be putting up a store section on the website as well as a mailing list for anyone who wants to sign up for occasional emails. I'm still debating if I'll do a one a week, I might just start out you know, with a bi-weekly email. But the goal with both of those is to make sure that I'm not only providing people with stimulating in-depth conversations through the podcast, but I also really want to be mindful of providing people with short, practical, digestible tips that people can easily take away. And so that will be the goal of sending out this email. You know, I have to say I'm really inspired on this front by Tim Ferriss's Five Bullet Friday. And at least starting out, I'm just going to model mine 
pretty much off Tim's. His is very much practical to the point, what I'm reading, what I'm listening to, a favorite quote. And I'm also going to mention a particular favorite technology or other life hack that I'm using. But that's going to be the goal, is to provide people with just a really brief, easy to digest update and similar thing with the stores. So if you're interested in finding something, whether it's related to the kind of technologies I'm going to talk about on today's show, or whether it's relating to nutrition on the show and some of the things that I'm enjoying or particular kinds of coffee, that I'm going to include that so that you can see and purchase some of those practical tips and tools. So with all of that said, I'd like to introduce today's guest, Mikey Siegel, who is someone who I'm really honored to have on this show. He's an extremely talented and intelligent and nice guy who's had a fascinating journey and he's really working at the cutting edge of combining technology with consciousness exploration. In fact, he's the founder of the Consciousness Hacking Movement, if you're familiar with that organization. So just to give you a sense of Mikey's background, Mikey is a robotics engineer turned consciousness hacker who envisions a present and future where technology supports psychological, emotional, and spiritual flourishing where our devices not only connect us to information, but also connect us to ourselves and to each other, acting as a catalyst for individual and collective awakening. He is currently the founder of Biofluent Technologies, Consciousness Hacking, and the Transformative Technology Conference. He received an MS from the MIT Media Lab. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mikey. If you are at all interested in the connection between technology and consciousness exploration, as well as more skillful interaction between human beings, then I think you're really going to enjoy my conversation with Mikey. He has a fascinating journey that he shared with us. And later in the podcast, he also shares some of his favorite technologies that are out there on the market now or are currently being developed. And I can include some of those links in the show notes. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So with that said, I give you my conversation with Consciousness Hacking founder, Mikey Siegel. Mikey, how's it going? Hey, Adrian, it's going great. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for making the time to speak with me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it is uh, totally my pleasure. And I'm excited to talk to such a like-minded human being. Absolutely. I've really wanted to speak with you for a while. You know, I'm familiar with your work and and very happy to be talking to you. So thank you for making the time. And before we sort of get into the interview and, you know, I'd love to know more about your background, I would invite you to tell folks just a little bit about how we got to know each other, if you want to share that story. Oh, yeah, that's probably that's a good way to start. So actually, you came to my attention because a buddy of mine, Chris, who, who does some communications and media stuff for uh, my organization, which is called Consciousness Hacking, sent me to this actually really nice looking website and blog and kind of, you know, online thing happening called hacking consciousness. 
And I was immediately like impressed and excited and also kind of feeling this sort of tension of like, who's this, you know, hacking consciousness person who's like calling themselves, you know, by this similar name. And so it was kind of this almost like love, like, you know, I noticed this sort of competitive part of me sort of showing up a little bit. And so eventually we actually, you wrote me a very nice email and that was actually the first of many communications we've had in which I've been totally impressed with your kindness and your honesty and your openness. So thank you for that. And we, we, you ended up coming over to the house. We sat down and talked. And I kind of had to have this sort of like, <laughs> I guess, from a, you know, for me, kind of having this sort of growing organization, uh, consciousness hacking, which is uh, kind of now in 30 communities around the world. And we're just starting to get press and, you know, just had a big feature in Wired Magazine. And, you know, I'm sort of watching all of this kind of kind of happen. And I'm having to sort of deal with new and interesting situations. So this was uh, an interesting conversation where I was going to kind of sit down and ex and kind of explain that I felt sort of uncomfortable with us having such similar names and us doing such similar things. And I had no idea how that conversation was going to go because it could go in many different directions. And I am grateful to say that I am just so happy with how the conversation went. And I just want your listeners to know that he isn't just a nice guy on the podcast. <laughs> he's, a, he's a really nice and understanding person, Adrian, in real life. And I, I guess my point, which you seem to understand really well, which is that I am really, really rooting for your success of your podcast. And I felt in this weird position where if you all of a sudden became super successful, and then I was becoming successful, there would be this weird dynamic where there would be two successful media voices talking about new approaches to consciousness and spirituality with almost identical names. So it forced me into this position where I was like rooting for your success and then hoping that you weren't successful. And it was this sort of a dance of tension. And so I am uh, responsible for the uh, name change of hacking consciousness. So that's, that's me. And thank you, Adrian, for, for helping to accommodate, accommodate us and to create a more, more spaciousness and diversity in the space. So thank you. Well, absolutely, Mikey. First of all, thank you so much for the kind words. I really appreciate them, especially coming for you. And I can genuinely say the same right back at you in terms of your kindness and openness and your generosity. So really appreciate that. And, you know, it was an interesting learning experience in many respects. You know, one was sort of a front row seat for me, which I never intended to have. This wasn't my motivation, but just sort of I was reflecting on this after our conversation. I was like, you know, this is what happens when an organization like yours really becomes successful in effectively promoting, you know, a concept or a particular name or idea like consciousness hacking, because that's precisely how I came across it. I, I came across the term, you know, late August when I was thinking about starting a podcast and I saw several people using the name, whether it was consciousness hacking or hacking consciousness, it was your organization. There was a Stanford course called hacking consciousness. There were just some other people using the term and I had the impression that it was this sort of movement, which clearly your organization was at the forefront of. So it sort of seemed like an open source sort of movement or whatever from that perspective. And then when I looked online, I saw nothing in the podcast space by that name. So I thought, great. 
But then, you know, I totally understood your perspective. And when we got together and I saw what you meant, and I think one thing that also I realized over the the few months of having this podcast is I started out just wanting to really talk about certain things that were of interest to me, but I've come to realize over time that there were other things I wanted to do with it. You know, for example, speak in person. And I've thought about, you know, just different ways that this could grow in the future and sort of expand beyond just a podcast. And then after I had that conversation, I really realized your point and sort of the need to avoid that confusion. But, you know, I'm really grateful for the fact that I did name the podcast that name originally because it gave us this opportunity to get to know each other. And I'm really grateful for that because, you know, you're an extremely smart and talented guy. And I look forward to learning a lot from you. So I'm grateful for this sort of funny way in which we came to know each other. Yeah, thanks, Adrian. Yeah, I often find that relationships that start immediately with moving through some sort of interesting conflict or, you know, some some sort of like unusual interpersonal exploration often have a, a very rich, lasting connection. So yeah, excited about what's to come. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Mikey, for telling that story. And on that note, let's sort of, you know, transition. And I'd love for you to start by telling people before we get to the work of the organization you started, Consciousness Hacking. You know, I, I just love to get a sense of you and you know how did these interests really evolve over time? I'm curious, kind of just basic bio, where did you grow up and what were you like when you were younger in terms of a high school student going into college as a learner? You know, What really captivated your imagination when you were young? Yeah, thanks for asking. I was a very curious, um, exploratory young person. Actually, I I feel like I've become less so as I've as I've grown older, which I lament a little bit. I remember when how old was I? I was probably around nine years old or ten years old, and I I distinctly remember this. I was in my room, and I I don't know what was happening at the time, but I remember making this deep solemn vow to myself that I was going to try to learn everything that I possibly could. And it was, you know, one of those, you know, sometimes in life, you like make these commitments to our, these commitments to ourselves, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, they're like things that kind of hurt us. Like, I will never let anyone hurt me like that again. So I'm going to close my heart, you know, or whatever the, whatever the vow is. But, but this one was actually this really positive one, I believe. And it has really shaped the direction of my life. And a lot of my interest when I was young was uh, in the area of, of technology and engineering and science. I remember I would love to take things apart. My parents would give me like their broken answering machines so that I wouldn't take apart the ones that were working um, because I would just like, I would just kind of steal things and just unscrew the top. And then I always had this interest in, in the esoteric. I remember there was this book that I had, which was all about a sort of the kind of esoteric mysteries of the world. And it was around psychic phenomenon and sort of unexplained mysteries and, you know, like the pyramids and, you know, all these, all these kind of things in kind of the new age esoteric world. And I just, I just devoured this book and other books like it. And I think it stemmed from this just deep interest in what was beyond the ordinary. This sense that the world that we lived in 
was just the surface, the world that we could see. And beneath that surface, I, I just knew and I continue to feel so strongly that there's so much more than we can imagine. And so um, as I got older and into high school, I remember I was, I was totally disillusioned with school. I mean, I would cheat my way through every, anything that I could do just to sort of get school out of the way, yet I was still an avid learner. So I was reading all of these weird books and I was, I would spend my summers renting, you know, checking out books from the library. And then finally, when I got into college, I, I really feel like I bloomed intellectually because that was the time when I could really choose to study what I wanted to study. And I spent the first two years of college just taking every possible class you can imagine. And then eventually I had to choose a, a major and uh, I decided on computer engineering because my logic was engineering was probably the least likely thing that I would learn outside of school. Whereas I felt like if I wanted to learn philosophy or music, I could, I could be self-motivated to do that. And then computer engineering because it combined electrical engineering and computer science. So I felt like I was getting the most bang for my buck, like the most broad education. But really, that's the mind's explanation. I think the heart would say that I've always been drawn to engineering, and I've always been drawn to, to building and creating things and understanding how things work. And so fast forward a bit, ended up spending time after my undergrad at NASA, working on some robotics-related systems. And then went from there to do my, my graduate work at the MIT Media Lab, also in a robotics group. And it was, it was actually after graduate school that I really discovered in an experiential way meditation and, and consciousness. And that's, that's when things got interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more of what that was like being in the Media Lab at MIT and, and how that would lead to your interest in consciousness hacking? Because the Media Lab is such a famous place. And I, I just love to hear, even if it wasn't, you hadn't connected it to consciousness yet, you sort of how you evolved as a learner there and kind of looking back with hindsight, how that helped to shape you. Yeah. It's only in, in retrospect that I saw how the dots connect. I guess that's often what happens. And maybe our brain is just good at connecting dots. I don't know. But when I was at the media lab, I was in a group called the Personal Robots Group, and it was almost like science fiction. We were working on these robots that were emotionally expressive, that had faces that move and bodies that move, that could also read and sense human emotion, and were designed to, to interact in a social context. And this really was an effort to say, okay, we've got these computers, these intelligent systems, and right now the way we talk to them, the way we interact with them is like by typing on keyboards and by moving mice around, or maybe now on a phone, you know, you're dragging your finger around or something. And this was a really an effort to say what happens when you create technology that has a, a social interface, because that's what we're designed to be relating to. We're, we're social animals. And so if our technology can be social, how would that change the way we relate and, we, and, and the way we interact with it? And actually, I, my thesis work, my master's thesis work when I was there was running a 300-person human subject study at the Museum of Science in Boston, where we had this humanoid robot that would interact with people. But what the robot was doing was actually asking for donations. 
actual real cash donations. So each person got an envelope with five $1 bills. They'd go in this little sealed room, you know, with the, you know, free from distraction. And then the robot would basically make a kind of a persuasive pitch that, you know, it needed, you know, <laughs> I forget what it said. Like it needed uh, donations to help uh, develop its AI software and, uh, you know, fix some of its broken motors or something like that. And so it would make this pitch for a donation. And there was a donation box and people could put as much money as they want. And this is sometimes what's called an objective measure because we're not asking people how they feel about the robot. We're measuring a direct behavior in response to the robot. And then what we would do is we would change things about the robot. So, for example, we change the robot's gender. It could be a male robot or a female robot by changing its, its voice. Um, we change how close the robot was to the person. We change whether or not the robot shook um, the person's hand. We would change the perceived autonomy of the robot. So we'd had literally, we had a curtain like Wizard of Oz style. We'd like pull the curtain aside and behind the curtain was like the graduate student, or, I mean the undergrad controlling the robot. And we would tell people that the robot is being controlled in this case. So people knew the robot was not intelligent at all. And so it's interesting, all the conditions maybe except the last one that we explored, were all conditions that are known to influence how human beings relate to each other. So it all comes out of the social psychology literature. So we're just applying understanding of human social psychology to human-robot interaction. And it turns out that people basically respond to robots as if, generally speaking, as if they're a person. So if you change a factor that would change how people interact with each other, but you change it on a robot, people are going to respond to it in the same way. And it was really interesting to find this out. And, and it essentially informed everything I did down the road, which is the realization that the quality of the interface of this technology profoundly impacts the way that people feel and the way they respond to the technology. But at the time, I had no compass at the time, I, I really had no sense for why I was developing these technologies, what the purpose was. And so I was just sort of exploring. And it wasn't till later that I really developed a sense of purpose and I saw some deeper meaning around why these technologies and for what purpose they could actually influence uh, human beings. And what helped you to gain that sense of purpose? That sense of purpose really came once I started really exploring exploring my inner world, I guess I guess you could say. After graduate school, after a lot of surface level exploration, reading books about meditation and dabbling here and there, I decided to really dive in. And part of it was motivated by curiosity, but to be honest, a, a lot of it was motivated because I really felt like crap in a lot of ways. I, I don't think I would have been clinically diagnosed with anything, maybe, maybe anxiety, perhaps, but I really felt a sense of disconnection, a sense of angst, a sense of meaninglessness, and just a sort of a, a flatness to my experience, um, which I realize now a, a big part was how emotionally suppressed that I was. But I'm grateful that I decided as one way to try to understand what was going on that I would go to this yoga ashram in Virginia called Yogaville, which is an awesome place. It's totally like a, you know, they, they could do like a, a reality TV show there, I think would be, <laughs> would be totally amazing. And I took a deep dive into meditation, into yoga, but most importantly, 
you know, as an engineer, I'd always been exploring my outer world. I'd been understanding how the world works and why the world works that way. And I'd been understanding myself in terms of how the world influences me. But what this opened up for me was the whole other side of the equation was actually that my inner experience, my mind, my emotions, the dynamics happening inside of me were arguably the most significant thing determining my, my whole experience of reality. And it's something that I was essentially totally ignoring. And once I started down that road of knowing myself and learning how to shift my relationship to myself, I never turned back. And I guess the biggest thing, or one of the biggest things at the time that I came to understand was that my relationship to myself, the nature of my own internal experience was also what colored and influenced how I showed up in the world. And then it hit me that that was true for everyone. And it started to dawn on me, and this has been something that has influenced everything that I've done since, it started to dawn on me that the world, the external world we live in is shaped by people's inner world and that people that are in pain, that are in fear, that are in competition, people that are deeply struggling internally will create a world of pain and fear and struggle. And the problems that we face in the world today are ultimately problems of consciousness. And I'm not you know, the first one to, to say that there's actually this great quote from the United Nations. It's from the first line of the UNESCO Constitution. And it says, since wars begin in the minds of men, it's in the minds of men that the defenses of peace must be constructed. And I think for me, what that points to is this incredible need and opportunity to change the world from the inside out. And so that really has been my driving purpose increasingly in, on this planet is primarily first to continue to uh, deepen and, and clarify and heal my own inner experience so I can show up with more integrity and, and wisdom and, and love on this planet, but to do what I can to help support that same transformation in other people. I think that one thing that strikes me when you tell your story, you know, on the one hand, it's so unique and it's interesting the way it combines with your background in engineering and in robotics. And I can already see how that's giving it a unique flavor. But on the other hand, what really strikes me the most is the universality of it. And it's sort of a common story for anyone who gets into meditation. It's the same for me. It was the same for seemingly everyone who tells the story. It's the moment when you realize that you've spent your entire life really not paying attention to the quality of your own consciousness. And then the moment that happens, when you begin to actually become interested in how your own mind works, it's the beginning of a new life, essentially. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, uh, and I agree. It's like <laughs> you see it just happen again and again and again. And, and, and another way I would say that is people realize that that's ultimately what's fundamental, that that's what it all comes down to, that everything that we're grasping for and trying for and seeking for in life globally, regardless of what your culture is or what your belief system is, ultimately my, at least my sense is we're trying to get back to that, ultimately get back to ourselves. 
back to our fundamental nature, back home to this resting in this experience. And we try to get there in some in some really weird and convoluted ways. And that's what creates a lot of the color in this world. Absolutely. And, and the mind is so complicated. It's why we try all of these different hacks and these different approaches, right? You know, I'd love to hear you talk more about, so you're starting to say, you realize this is the most important thing to more positively affect the quality of your own consciousness and to help other people do the same. So what are some of the tools that you're starting to realize at this point in your life when you have this realization are the most potent for doing so? And, and obviously starting with meditation, but then sort of walk us through what you've discovered since that point over time, esoteric, exoteric, you know, natural, technological yeah, I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version because that could be a long story. But actually, yeah, there's a, there's a pretty nice progression to it. Started off with this sort of traditional yogic approach, kind of the eightfold yogic path, and that was a nice intro. It it was an introduction to meditation. It helped me to connect with my body a little bit. It was kind of a sort of this nice overview of of sort of the various manifestations of of spirituality and. When I was at this ashram, I think I was I was loved, but but I was also like the loved challenge student, the challenge, like the the problem child, because I just voraciously asked questions, and I wanted to know how do you know that's true? How do you know we're reincarnated? How do you know that this guru is the one true guru? Like how like how do you know all you know? And just every question, asking it to the end and to the end and to the end, and and I would often, almost always, reach a point where they would kind of, in a nice way, kind of throw their arms up and say, not really have ultimately an answer. And I ended up in India, continuing on my quest, searching around and staying at ashrams and exploring and meditating. And I ended up coming across a book by a well-known teacher, particularly in India, named Ramana Maharshi. And Ramana Maharshi teaches a method called um, self-inquiry, where you are, in a sense, asking questions, asking, asking, asking. But what you're ultimately inquiring into is not like, why are the, you know, is the sky blue? And, you know, why is the, you know, all of these sort of worldly questions, you're inquiring into the nature of self. You're inquiring fundamentally into who and what you are. And it finally was something that my mind could completely consume itself with. It was like it took the skepticism and the doubt and all of these questions and this need to make sense of things, and it allowed it to rest in this one-pointed way on this fundamental inquiry into who am I? Who am I? The, fun, the most fundamental of all questions. And then I later discovered Nisargadatta, who is also a, a non-dual teacher who teaches a similar sort of inquiry into this question of who are you? And then um, from there, sometimes I'll say that YouTube was my guru because from there I discovered the non-dual teachings on YouTube and the dozens of incredible teachers that are out there from Adi Ashanti to Muji to Gangaji to <laughs> the Gs. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of them, a lot of really wonderful teachers. And all in this non-dual tradition, all pointing back in a way that for a totally, total rational 
mind-oriented person like me allowed me to not experience conflict. Like it kind of made things easy for me. It was so accessible because it was all this language-based inquiry into the nature of reality itself. And that was beautiful and really took my whole experience to, to new depths. And it also, um, in, a, in a sense, created a kind of a monster <laughs> in, in other ways. And I started to really develop a kind of a spiritual ego. And because I, my mind had sort of figured out this whole kind of non-dual logic. Because there is a kind of a logic to breaking down and kind of proving that um, we are not what we think we are. And I would just, every time I would get in conversation with someone, <laughs> I would try to steer the conversation to ultimately to like, so, so who are you then? <laughs> And I would like, you know, sort of like, well, how do you know? Like, what about when you're in deep sleep? You know, or like, what, you know, like, what if your hand would get cut off? Are you less than you were before? You know, and like, I just had like all the, you know, classic kind of pointers. And I just loved doing it. And I was so sure that I knew, like, what was up, you know, the nature of the universe. And I ended up kind of transitioning from that phase to, to I guess you could say broadly, the, the phase I'm, I'm in now which was a, quite a few years ago, when I ended up in, a, in an ayahuasca ceremony. When was this roughly, Mikey? So let's see. It was when I turned 30, I was like well into the non-dual thing, um, probably for about a year at that point. And it was probably when I was getting close to 31. So probably two years really into the non-dual thing. And then I ended up at this ayahuasca ceremony. And I remember at the beginning of the ceremony, there was like this intention circle where everyone states their intention and everyone is, is stating these intentions. Like I want to heal my relationship with my, with my family, or I want to connect with my, you know, deceased grandmother, or I want to connect and really learn how to express my creative potential and all of these things. And as we went around the circle, I was totally flabbergasted. I was so confused because I could not understand. It was like, it was really actually totally mind boggling to me that anyone would be pursuing anything other than enlightenment. I just couldn't, I couldn't get it because for me, that was the only thing worth pursuing and this very particular kind of non-dual flavor of enlightenment. And of course, when it got to my turn, I was like, enlightenment, period. <laughs> That was it. That's my only intention is enlightenment. Every, all of this, all this other stuff is just like illusion. It's all you just dancing in this illusion. And so, you know, we drank the medicine and in this particular, you know, kind of group, they have this thing called the healing mat, which is this mat in the middle of the room. And you lay down on the mat and, you know, if you, you sort of get chosen at some point. So I'm, I'm sitting on this mat and there's all these people all around me. And I start to realize as I'm lying down here that something weird is happening, that all of these people seem to be somehow talking about and collaborating on something happening inside of my own body. Like they knew about it. They all seem to know about the same thing. And it was something that I could feel inside of me, which I would later, you know, now in a very normal sense would call energy. And then they started moving this energy that was sort of this blocked energy kind of up my body from sort of my, my root chakra 
up my body, sort of up my chest and up my neck. And as they're doing this, I'm feeling it in my body. Their hands are all moving. They're all talking in a way about it. And it's mind boggling to me. How could they know what is inside of me? And then this other question of what is that inside of me that I'm even feeling? And so this was my first taste, my first experience of really like starting to get into embodiment and actually connecting to what's happening below my neck (laughs) and experiencing the energy flowing inside of me and realizing that this is something that both myself and other people can be sensitive to and that that's actually part of what I would now call a healing path. And, you know, like 30 ayahuasca ceremonies later and way too many programs and and workshops and and practices to, to even begin to recount to you over the last years, but my approach to awakening is very different now. And for me, I'm on what some might call the slow path, <laughs> the slow path to awakening, whereas you know the, the non-dual teachers would say, if you can just know who you are now in this moment, you're done. And there's a truth to that. And I think that that's vital and important. And there's also a phenomenon called the enlightened asshole phenomenon, where people have a sort of a neck up awakening where they, in a sense, recognize some fundamental quality and nature of reality and, and shift their sense of identity. Yet they've never dealt with their, with their shit. They've never solved their mommy and daddy issues. They have all this held uh, traumas and emotional blocks and triggers that are still held in the body and in their system. And so they're showing up in this world in a way that perpetuates that pain even though they don't identify with it anymore. And so my path very much is one of awakening through the healing process, recognizing for me, what I've seen is that the only reason why I'm ever not fully present is because there's some pain that I'm avoiding. Right now, in this moment, the only reason why I'm not completely 100% embodied presence is because there's something I don't want to feel. And so for me, my path now is just how can I feel and love the the total fabric of this experience as it is right now in this moment. So interesting hearing your story unfold because what you said earlier on, you demonstrated a real self-awareness around, for example, how you were kind of cut off emotionally in grad school and things like that. And then so it was interesting to hear sort of where you were later. And then when you said that ayahuasca was the thing that really connected you and made you feel more embodied, I really resonated with that because my motivations, I would say I was in a pretty similar place. I mean, when I did ayahuasca, you know, I think I had a strong sense of embodiment for doing a lot of yoga, but it was similar in that. I thought, well, I know these other people are here for to work on their traumas, and that's that's wonderful because I've heard ayahuasca can really work with that, and and I hope it really helps them. But uh, you know, I'm kind of mainly here for consciousness exploration. I don't really have issues, and then doing ayahuasca. You know, we did it eight times in two weeks, and I really realized, oh yeah, they're there are actually some issues I have to work on. You know, and I've done some work with it since, and it it really has helped me to sort of gain closure on some of those. But it's amazing to hear that story for you as well. And it's sort of a recurring theme 
that I hear around ayahuasca. I mean, there's something I think that is unique about it opposed to other psychedelics, and there's something truly healing and medicinal about it. I'd love to ask you, because as someone who's really rational and skeptical myself, always trying to be cautious around how I interpret experiences, I'd love to kind of get your take on how you interpret the ayahuasca experience, because it really does feel like, and feel free to disagree if you don't feel this way, but so many people speak about ayahuasca as whether it's a feminine presence or a spirit, it really does feel like one is interfacing with a sort of intelligence. And I'm curious what you've concluded about that, or are you just totally comfortable? Well, it's it's one thing to say we can't know. I guess I'm curious what kind of your intuition tells you about ayahuasca. Is it a form of plant intelligence or is that simply how the mind records it? Yeah, good question. For me, at my base level is mystery. I just don't know what the hell's going on here. And then is this all in my mind? You know, I don't, I don't know what it is, what this reality is. And then one step above that, the next level up, for me, in my experience, it's very clear that intelligence takes many forms. This reality is imbued with intelligence. And to think that this kind of meat bodies, uh, this kind of human form is the only container, the only expression of really advanced intelligence, I think is preposterous. And I think that actually it's probably a very limited, constrained form of intelligence. And I think that um, there are way more advanced intelligences that we can make contact with. And I would imagine that when you take psychedelics, what you're sort of doing is almost tuning a radio to be able to interface better with these other forms of intelligence that exist in the same way that you might talk to another, another person. Yeah, I, I've come to sort of have a similar feeling. So that gives me some insight into what your thoughts on consciousness are. Clearly, you don't think it's an epiphenomenon of the brain or even just a mind-body thing. You're open to the idea that consciousness could actually be something that pervades the universe the way that energy does. Would that be a fair characterization? Yeah, certainly. And did you have that view before ayahuasca or was ayahuasca a big part of what opened you up to that? It's probably been a, um, yeah, progressive uh, leaning. I've, to be honest, I've never really been dogmatic about that particular perspective because I've always, for me, it's always been more of an engineering approach. I'm, you know, I guess we'll get we'll get, we'll get into this. Probably the the listeners are like, what's <laughs> what does this guy do? <laughs> like, <laughs> what's going on here? But I've taken the engineering approach, and, and it's for me, it's just about what works, right? What can you actually develop? to kind of innovate on and optimize this experience of transformation and, and connection with, with ourselves. And if it works, it works. And I don't need to even know how or why. I don't need to have the ultimate theory for myself. So, but yeah, I would, I would certainly say that the more I got into what I would call sort of the cosmic side of things, the more I've just really let go of the idea that this kind of materialist reductionist perspective. Right. And I like the idea of just really being comfortable in the mystery. I think there's so much to be said for that. And basically the humility that goes along with that, with that worldview as well. So let's talk about, you were sharing about your personal journey and your, your evolution. And so ayahuasca really was a turning point for you. And then how was this connecting with your creative and professional interest around 
consciousness hacking and, and how it led to the formation of, of that organization? Yeah, well, I guess to kind of step it back just a little bit further, I would say one of the biggest things to happen in my life was kind of this, this union of this, this sort of odd couple or you know, unlikely match of technology, modern technology, and spirituality or consciousness. And those two things did not obviously connect for me. And it actually was a pretty long road, a road that continues to this day of really seeing that dance between them. And if anything, if, if sometimes people ask me, like, what, what do you do? And if I'm feeling kind of poetic, sometimes my answer is what I'm doing is I'm actually healing, working to heal this false sense of separateness between what we call science and what we call spirit or between what we call technology and what we call sort of the spiritual tools for transformation. And so I guess, I guess what I saw in my own life were these two deepening interests. One was this like long time, lifelong love of building stuff and creating things and solving problems. And the other was this recognition I described before that there was really nothing, there was nothing that I wanted to focus on in this world except for supporting awakening on the planet. It just, everything else seemed like it was some sort of convoluted effort to ultimately just get there anyway. And so that's when it started to dawn on me that if I was going to continue to be an engineer, which I love doing, that's what I wanted to be engineering. That's what I wanted to be developing technology around. And I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't know how you do that or, or how that works. And it was this big open question. But I knew that if, if I was going to develop technology for anything, I wanted to support awakening. And so I remember it was, uh, I think, like three and a half years ago or so, four years, something like that, when we had our first consciousness hacking meetup. And the very first meetup, I, I, was, I was pretty self-conscious because for me, this is a very new and unusual idea. And the topic for the first meetup was, what is consciousness hacking? It was a question. And I remember it was in Santa Cruz and it was like 12 or 15 people sitting around in a circle. And it was just like, what about this crazy idea, <laughs> you know, and just talking about it. And from there, it still was a long time before I was ever speaking publicly about it or really gaining, you know, momentum and traction about bringing it more deeply into the world. Interesting. Okay. And so then how did things really begin to evolve and gain a sort of momentum from those early meetups to where you are today? Yeah. What I realized was that this question was a provocative one and it was something that, that struck a chord. And as soon as I brought the meetup to San Francisco, you know, I think for our first event, we sold out, you know, we, we filled the space, you know, it was a small space. We had like 40 or 50 people there. And that was our very, very first time we ever held an event. And people were interested in this. And, and further along we went, the more people started to, to show up. And then all of a sudden, someone wanted to start this in New York. And then someone wanted to start this in, in Santa Barbara or, or Boulder, Colorado, or you know, wherever it might be. And I never marketed this. I've never, I've never asked anyone to start you know, a meetup. I believe it's, it's just that I articulated an idea space. I articulated a possibility that other people had also been feeling and been excited about. And the people that show up to these meetups and are part of this community have, have at least three things in common. And I know this because often when I start a meetup, I ask these three questions and I have people raise their hand. 
And the three questions are, are you interested in technology or science? And, and most people raise their hand. And then I ask, who has some sort of spiritual practice, yoga, meditation, whatever it might be? And almost everyone raises their hand. And then the final question is an interesting one. I say, who is planning to or has already left a, a kind of a conventional life path to pursue something risky, but more in line with a deeper sense of purpose and meaning? And like 75% of the people in the room raise their hand. And for me, what consciousness hacking is about at one level is innovating on and developing new, new modern tools that support transformation, new, new technologies that can elevate consciousness. But, but one step below that, it's about recognizing that what we do and create in the world can be in line with a deeper meaning, can be in, in line with a grand and uplifting vision for ourselves and humanity. And we all have that potential to live and create from that place, whether you're an economist or an educator or an engineer or whatever. I think that's, that's sort of the, the deeper aspect of it. Well, you're, you're touching on a question I wanted to ask, so I may as well ask it now because it's you know so often cited where people talk around technology it's something that pulls us out of mindfulness right as opposed to something that draws us deeper yeah. into it or even on a much more basic level i actually got this response from someone on twitter the other day when they saw the purpose of the organization and she's like basically the idea that well from what i can tell of technology you know it's all negative as opposed to it's this, it's all good or it's all bad, as opposed to it being a tool that's neutral, whose value is really dictated by the intention and the skill of the people that actually use that tool. So I'd love for you to kind of touch on how do we use technology more mindfully to help us draw us into a life that's more about living in the present as opposed to something that draws us out of it. Thank you for bringing that up. People are totally forgiven, and, and it's like I and I completely 100% get it for looking around and saying, What the hell are you talking about? Technology is the furthest thing imaginable from supporting this, you know, what meditation and yoga and these practices try to support. And it's true. And the point that you made is a point that I deeply agree with is that it's not an inherent quality of technology, that's the way that it was designed. It was never designed for that purpose. And it's sort of like looking around at the food industry and having really the disturbing realization that most of the, the top causes of death are diet related. The food industry is literally killing a lot of the people on our planet. But of course, we all recognize it would be silly to say that food itself, you know, is bad, right? <laughs> that we want to like disconnect from food, you know, and, and stop eating. Of course, no one would say that because we, we recognize that actually healthy food is actually vital and eating healthy food is a basic human need. It's, it's part of what we do as humans. But what we don't recognize for some reason is that developing and using technology is also part of what it means to be human. It's actually a defining quality of humanness, we, from stone tools to, the, to creating f fire, 
Um, this is part of our human legacy. But we have this kind of cultural indoctrination or, or mindset that there's something unnatural about technology. But when we look at like a bird's nest or a beehive, we, we think of that as natural. And I'm starting to more deeply understand why, why we think that way. And I think the reason is because we can just feel in this deep way that what we're creating as a humanity is not in harmony with life's natural flows and rhythms, whereas uh, many other animals exist and create in that natural flow. And I think that's because we have become disconnected from ourselves. We've become disconnected from our embodied felt experience of ourselves and, and of, the, of the planet. And so to kind of a, your question, the way to remedy this is to begin building technology from that place. And there are people that give seminars or talk about how to relate to technology mindfully or to, you know, how do we use our cell phones less or, you know, turn it off when you go to sleep. And, you know, there's so there's all of this advice on how to kind of be more mindful with our technology. And that's totally great. But those are all coping strategies, coping with this deeper problem. And that's not my interest. My interest is solving the more systemic problem. And for me, the solution to the systemic problem is the same solution as, as for every single other human endeavor. And that is it begins with us because we are what we build and we build what we are. And so the only way to be able to create technology that is actually in harmony and is actually deeply therapeutic and healing and supportive is to create from that intention and from that understanding and from that place. And so that means literally like, like I have a vision and I share this vision with many other people of something like, for, you know, for example, a startup ashram, you know, where you actually have people developing the future of AI, but they're spending half the day meditating and half the day writing code. How would that change the AI that shows up on this planet if it was created from that state of consciousness? And the nice thing, which I'm um, hardened by, is that you look around at these conferences like Wisdom 2.0 and you look at what's happening in, in industry, um, especially in Silicon Valley, these big companies like Facebook and Google, mindfulness is starting to infiltrate. It's starting to show up all over the place. And so the beautiful thing is that my optimistic part of me says this is actually already happening. I love the way you phrase that. And I love the idea of in a startup ashram that spends half the day meditating, half the day writing code. You know what it made me think of when you said it is I've read how Gandhi would spend one full day a week, even in the midst of, you know, organizing a campaign to bring down the British Empire, he would spend one full day a week in meditation, in silence, like not working at all, doing nothing but meditating and devotional practices. And, you know, some other supporters would kind of say, what are you doing? And, and he would just talk about the importance of going into that space for restoring oneself and refining one's, one's focus and one's attention. And it's like, if Gandhi could take one day a week to meditate while bringing down the British Empire, surely the rest of us could find the time as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Good. Well, well said. So totally. I, I'd love for you to give you know, just a little highlight list of some of your favorite 
or perhaps what you would see as the most promising technologies that are either out there already or that are being developed in terms of allowing us to explore our own consciousness or to interact more meaningfully with others as well? Yeah. So I, I always start with the Muse headset because for me, they're, they're like the poster child for what this tech could look like or what this tech looks like now. What it could look like in 10 years or 15 years is, is a whole different story. But the Muse headset is, uh, looks like a headband, but what it's actually doing is it's measuring what's happening inside your brain, the electrical activity of your brain. And it connects to your phone over Bluetooth and then you put on headphones that are also connected to your phone. And you sit down and you meditate. And I bought this for my parents, actually, who always were you know, just like, like never interested in meditation at all. But because this is a technology and it's it's like not normal meditation, they're like they're okay, well, you know, we'll we'll use this. And they totally were digging it for a while. And and the way that it works is it actually gives you this both in verbal instruction, but also actual real-time sound-based feedback on what's happening inside your mind. And so as your mind gets more busy, the soundscape gets more busy. And it's literally like having a kind of an intuitive meditation teacher that's telling you when your mind is wandering in a gentle and soothing way. And so it's kind of an accelerated learning tool for meditation, especially if it's something a meditation is totally new to you. Another technology is the spire which does a similar thing but for breathing um, you put it kind of in your waistband and it measures your breathing and breath throughout the day and measures signs of stress and kind of helps guide you towards more well-being another tech i like is a new one that's just coming out called the leaf l-i-e-f and this is actually sort of a flexible soft kind of flexible tech that actually sticks onto your uh, sort of lower ribs on, on your body and you wear it on your body throughout the day and it's actually measuring your heart. And instead of sitting down like at the muse and doing a session of meditation, what it actually does is it measures you all day long and then can detect the most optimal time to sort of intervene. And then it can guide you through a, a kind of a heart rate variability based meditation, which can really help from a body basis and a respiration kind of breathing basis to really calm your body and teach you how to build better habits around breathing and uh, kind of physiological balance. So those are three examples of like what this looks like right now in the consumer market. But kind of what you were alluding to is where my big interest and passion and excitement is. And it's around the interpersonal side of these technologies because we're way more connected through technology than we've ever been. It's like a few billion people on social networks worldwide, but we're like two to three times lonelier than we were 50 years ago. And so something is missing here. And what's missing is the quality of connection is not being supported through technology. And the quality of connection, as shown consistently by positive psychology research, is one of the biggest determining factors to our sense of well-being. We are social animals. We need human connection. It's important. It's fundamental. And so what I've been developing is a, an open source platform under the nonprofit umbrella of consciousness hacking, 
which is designed to support the science and technology of human connection. And it's a 24-person system. It can, can support up to 24 people at the same time sitting in a room together. It measures uh, their heart. can measure their breath. It can measure their brain. It can measure a few different things. And then it takes that information. It takes what's happening inside of these people's bodies, brings it into a central computer, and it turns that into sound and light and music in real time for the group. And it's like a kind of a collective form of self-awareness that can help draw the group, guide the group into a kind of a deeper harmony, a deeper sense of synchrony. And we can do all kinds of things with this, with this platform. So like a typical, we actually just ran a meditation retreat at Esalen, which is kind of this, this awesome epic retreat center. It was a three-day meditation retreat led by a collaborator named Dustin DePerna, who's a fantastic meditation teacher. And this was a human technology hybrid um, where we created whole new practices and whole new approaches that, that wove technology into them. So for example, Dustin might be guiding a tantric heart-based meditation where you're actually feeling the physical sensation of your heart beating in your chest. And as you're being guided through that meditation, slowly through your headphones, the actual sound of your heartbeat begins to fade in. You're actually hearing your own heartbeat. And then right in front of you, you have your own personal computer-controlled light starts pulsing with your own heartbeat. So now you're seeing your heartbeat. And then you'd be instructed, let's say, to turn to your neighbor. And now we crossfade the sound. Now you're hearing your neighbor's heartbeat. They're hearing your heartbeat. You're seeing each other's heartbeat. And now you're looking into each other's eyes. And Dustin is guiding you through this meditation to really love this person and, and recognize the humanity of this person and to see them as this real being. And that's what people describe when they can feel someone's heartbeat. It's like, oh, they're like, they're real. <laughs> they're this real person. And then, you know, we, we can do a million other things. We can turn to the middle of the circle, take your headphones off. And then one person at a time, we can bring your breath to fill the space with sound and light. So as you inhale, the whole space is filling with light and, and this beautiful orchestral sound. And as you exhale, you know, it goes to darkness. And then the whole room is breathing with you as they practice a, a kind of a meta practice or a loving kindness practice towards you. And then you go person by person around the room where everyone receives this loving kindness from the room as the whole room is breathing in sync with, with their breath filling the space. And so these are the kinds of things that we're exploring with now with this technology. That's super interesting. I've done that same tantric practice you know, where you're staring into the person's eyes, I'd, I'd be very curious to do it with the technology. I can only imagine how that would enhance it. Yeah, it's been cool. But so far, the results, we've got a long, 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 long way to go. It's a big task to try to improve on these ancient practices. It really is. So we've got a long way to go. But I'm excited to say that, that I believe we've created something that's at least a little bit additive to the meditation experience in certain cases. Sounds really cool. I want to ask you as well, I've been hearing a lot of talk around AR, you know, augmented reality and also virtual reality. And I know it's got a lot of different applications. I'm curious how you see the value of those technologies, what they could possibly contribute in terms of, 
you know, not only consciousness exploration, but once again, facilitating more mindful and skillful interpersonal communication as well. Yeah, the AR VR space is a big one. I, I kind of have this, not a new idea, but this sort of framing of, I guess, you know, what you could call like an attentional warfare that's been going on for a long time, where from radio to television to computers to apps, there's been this sort of arms race to create technologies that can increasingly hold and and engage human att- attention. And the reason why is because if you can hold human attention, that's power. Because what we attend to, we, we become, right? We are what we attend to. And that's why every single meditation practice to ever exist on the planet is some set of instruction or some uh, protocol for how we hold and direct human attention. And so VR and AR are perhaps the most powerful technologies to ever exist for doing that. And they can be used for, you know, to put it in like Star Wars terms, they can be used for, you know, for bad, whatever that would be, but they can also be used for good. It's like a laser and it depends on where we point it. And I believe that creative technologists, which there are already some working on this, who have the goal of revolutionizing meditation, which I think is important to do, could create using VR and AR experiences that I I believe could be a thousand times more potent than any meditation practice to ever exist. Have you seen anyone who's been doing that so far? I have seen people working on it, you know, still still just scratching the surface. There's a VR experience called SoundSelf created by a, f- a friend of mine, Robin, and this is really interesting. It's you could call it a game, but it's not it's really not a game at all. It's really an, an experience and you you put on these a VR headset and you connect a microphone and you sort of lie down. Ideally you're like lounging in a chair or something, you know. You don't want to do this standing up. And you start toning into the microphone. It's like, and as you do that, this sort of vortex of swirling geometry and color starts to form around you in response to your voice. And then the system through headphones starts to harmonize and sing back at you. And the more you kind of give to the system, sort of breathing and toning kind of methodically, the whole thing starts toning and swirling back at you. And it's really like this meditative, shamanic-like experience. It's really, really cool. And so that's just one example of the kind of stuff that people are coming up with. Wow. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. One question I wanted to ask you in terms of the use of these technologies, and it might not be any of the ones you particularly mentioned like Muse, but I've been reading some literature on things like, for example, the Apple Watch and just sort of, and also as well as smartphones in terms of just raising some concerns about exposure to EMFs on a regular basis. I'm curious if you have any potential concerns around that, or if you haven't read enough of the science, that's totally fair to say as well. But I'm curious about things like the Apple Watch or, you know, having your phone on at night. Are those things that, would you wear the Apple Watch? Would you, you know, do you take certain precautions to reduce EMF exposure? I don't. And I would not be surprised at all 
if it becomes very clear and obvious that exposing ourselves to really strong sources of EMF that we were would never be exposed to, you know, in kind of our evolutionary process as human beings, that that would have some detrimental effects. I mean, it's like, how many times do we need to learn that lesson? <laughs> you know, as human beings, we're like, we think like, oh, yeah, we'll just spray this chemical on, you know, on these plants and everything will be fine. So totally wouldn't be surprised if, if that has harmful effects. And I, and I haven't seen the juries out on, on the science. Right. Just wanted to ask you, since I, I've been reading a little bit of some of these biohackers recently who have been like raising concerns around those particular issues. Yeah. Yeah. Worth, worth bringing up and worth having on people's radars because there are a lot of unhealthy side effects, I imagine, from the tech that surrounds us. For sure. Yeah. Well, Mikey, I'm conscious of your time. You've been very generous with it. And I want to thank you so much. I also want to give you an opportunity before we part ways to let people know more about where they can find you, as well as, you know, for people who'd like to become more involved with consciousness hacking and learn more about these technologies, where they can sort of take some next steps in order to do so. Yeah, for sure. The consciousness hacking website is cohack.life, C-O-H-A-C-K.life. And you can see if there's a chapter near you. If there's not one, you're welcome to start one. Just all the info is there on how to reach out. And if you're interested in the Group Flow Project, you can find us on Facebook. There's a Group Flow Project group on Facebook. Group Flow is one, one word. So come, come check us out there. Excellent. Thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation. You have tons of knowledge and insight to share and really thank you for your time. Thank you, Adrian. It was totally a pleasure. Appreciate the conversations, your questions, and I hope that this was of at least like a little bit of benefit to, you know, to some people. My long rambles here. More than a little, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Mikey. Bye, Adrian. Okay, take care. This podcast is 100% ad-free and aspires to stay that way. If you're enjoying the show, please support us at patreon.com slash hackingtheself.